Questions are being asked about the way police handled their questioning of the young couple after they were spotted arguing. On that newly released 911 call, a witness says he clearly saw Brian striking Gabby. But cops on the scene perceived Gabby to be the aggressor. Now a park ranger who was there says she told Gabby to reconsider what she perceived to be a toxic relationship. The park ranger who was there when Gabby Petito was pulled over warned her that her relationship with Brian Laundrie seemed toxic. She's got herself on. She's calling her parents just to feel better. Park ranger Melissa Holes says she spoke woman to woman with Gabby in the backseat of a police cruiser on August 12th in Utah. The traffic stop happened after a witness called 911, seeming to contradict the police report that depicted Gabby as the aggressor because she scratched Brian. We're driving by and I'd like to report a domestic dispute. A gentleman was slapping the girl. He was slapping her? Yes, and then we stopped. They ran up and down the sidewalk. He proceeded to hit her. We have been fighting all morning. I was imploring with her to reevaluate the relationship, the park ranger now says. I was asking her if she was happy in the relationship with him and basically saying this was an opportunity for her to find another path to make a change in her life. But Gabby told the park ranger she wanted to stay with Laundry. She doesn't want to not be with him tonight. She had a lot of anxiety about being away from him, the park ranger told the Deseret News newspaper. But retired Los Angeles police sergeant Cheryl Dorsey says Gabby may not have felt comfortable discussing her relationship with Brian while he was nearby. All they had to do was separate the two, uh, inconvenience them, if you will, put this young woman in a place where she could speak freely out of his presence about what was going on. I'm choosing not to cite you today. Neither Gabby nor Brian was charged, but they were told to spend the night apart to cool down. We thought we were making the right decision when we left them, says Holes. It's hard not to second guess myself and wish I had said more or wish I had found the right words to make her believe that she deserved more. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. I hope you've managed to catch up with the latest developments in the case regarding the lawsuit against Merb City Police, and also that you enjoyed my fascinating interview with Brian Entin. Now, if you haven't caught up or listened to my interview with Brian yet, I highly recommend you do. Also, before I dive into this episode, I want to give the usual heads up. I'll be using audio from the police stop and talking in depth about Gabby's case. You may find it distressing and or triggering, and you'll certainly find it angry-making, so listener discretion is advised. Now I've been reflecting on everything that Brian and I discussed, as I mentioned at the end of the interview. There were so many interesting moments for me, and there are some things now that I want to circle back to before diving into Officer Eric Pratt's video footage. And yes, there's still more to say. So first off, I do believe there was a strategy between Brian Laundrie and his parents. Brian must have communicated with his parents to say he was going back to their house and that the trip had come to an end. I doubt he just turned up there. I mean, it is possible, but I don't think it happened. And of course, phone records and cell site analysis would show how many calls, messages and so on there were between them, including the duration of the calls and when they took place, etc. Well, there were also two odd text messages received by Nicole Schmidt from Gabby's phone. The first message, 
was received on the 27th of August. It read, Can you help Stan? Question mark. I just keep getting his voicemails and missed calls. Stan was Gabby's grandfather. However, according to Nicole, Gabby's mum, Gabby didn't call him Stan. So that struck her as odd at the time. The second text message was received on the 30th of August and read, No service in Yosemite. We know that Gabby and Brian had planned to head to Yellowstone National Park and that Gabby was going to meet a friend there. We now know that Brian was on his way back to Florida on the 30th of August and arrived there on the 1st of September. Also, Gabby didn't text her friend happy birthday on the 28th of August, which was out of character. Now, due to this and some other important information, which I'll share in a future episode, I believe Gabby was killed on the 27th of August. Therefore, the messages were most likely not sent by Gabby. So if these two messages weren't sent by Gabby, who had possession of Gabby's phone at the time? Well, most likely it was Brian. Now these text messages are important pieces of evidence because they further corroborate that there was indeed a strategy to deceive. Now another important point I want to circle back to was regarding Brian and his money. Remember, Brian Laundrie used Gabby's car to fill the van with gas to travel back home. Well, initially I shared with you that I thought this was due to the fact Brian had no money. I mean, he wasn't working, or he didn't appear to be, before they left on this trip. He also told the police, and I quote, "'What little money we have we share.'" and that he couldn't afford a hotel for the night, and that's why a woman's shelter paid for the night's accommodation. Well, according to Brian Entin, Brian Laundrie did have money. So I followed up on this, and I can confirm that he had $20,000 in his Bank of America account. Roberta and Christopher Laundrie, in fact, filed a petition in Sarasota County on the 8th of December 2021 to become administrators of his estate. Also, you heard me mention to Brian Entin that Brian Laundrie paid for a flight home on Tuesday the 17th of August, just five days after the police stop, and he was home in Florida until the 23rd of August. He flew home to help his father empty out a storage unit where he and Gabby had their things, so the story goes. Now, according to Nicole Schmidt, Brian Laundrie's father offered to let them keep their belongings in his house so they wouldn't have to pay for the storage unit. Throughout the time that Brian was away, Gabby stayed in the Fairfield Inn in Salt Lake City, and Brian then flew back to Utah, and they left the hotel together on the 24th of August which was a Tuesday. Nicole now wonders why it was necessary to move Gabby's things during their road trip and also what became of her stuff. Now, as I said before, this also seems odd to me. I'm not convinced that this was the reason, as it seems an expensive solution to fix a problem when you claim that you're saving money. It fights itself, even if he got a cheap flight. I'm sure it could have waited until they returned. Either way, it's clear to me that Brian Laundrie did indeed have money. 
So now I have two more questions. The first is why did he use Gabby's Capital One card after he killed her? Was it part of a strategy to make people think Gabby was still alive? If so, whose strategy was it? Was it Brian's strategy? Or was it Brian and his family too? I'm very curious to know what other messages were sent between Gabby and Brian's phone after she was missing, and also what texts and calls there were between Brian and his family, and also whether there were any calls to Steve Bertolino prior to the 2nd of September, either from Christopher and Roberta Laundrie and or Brian. The second question is, if Brian Laundrie had money... Why didn't he pay for Gabby to stay in a hotel? Now, he was asked this by officers if he or they could afford to, and he said no. Brian lied about his financial situation and took money from a women's shelter, money that could have been used on a victim whose life was genuinely at risk, and that makes me angry. Why deprive someone else who really needed it? This, for me, talks to Brian's narcissism. But let's not forget, he also lied about having a phone to Officer Robbins, Officer Pratt and Park Ranger Crowell. Take a listen to this. I was on the keys, but I didn't want to go anywhere. I don't have my phone, I don't have a phone. So she goes off without me. It's all right. I'm on my own. Additionally, Officer Robbins suggested to Gabby that he could relay to Brian that she loved him. Now at this point, Gabby turned away and teared up again, and she nodded, but the message she asked Officer Robbins to convey to Brian was, and I quote, tell him not to forget his phone charger, as his phone is definitely dead. Take a listen to this so that you can hear it for yourself. So... I've got him a hotel room tonight. So here in just a minute, I have to keep you guys separated. For right now, don't contact each other, don't wave at him, okay? Do you want me to say anything to him? Because I can do that for you. You want me to let him know that you love him and that you'll see him tomorrow and stuff like that? I can do that for you. Oh, he's bad about that too? Yeah. Okay, I'll make sure that he has a phone charger, okay? Now, Officer Robbins even says, I'll make sure Brian has a phone charger. Well, why would he do this when Brian told him that he didn't have a phone? Then Officer Robbins relays the message to Brian and Brian admits to looking for a phone charger with Park Ranger Crowell. Take a listen to this. So, taking some time tonight, specifically, taking tonight away from each other is going to be Major breaker and all of this. I think that'll help you guys, especially tomorrow when you guys meet up. So if she does have a couple of messages for you. One, she says she loves you. She wants, she's looking forward to seeing you tomorrow. Two, don't forget to sell phone Yeah, good. He watched me fumble around the entire three laps around. I'm trying to find no one. Yeah, find one. Find one. Okay. <laughs> the other thing is, is I don't want you guys to contact each other. No, okay. I, unless, I, I, unless, I, unless, I, unless when he, when he said that I, that she's gonna text me or whatever, I was gonna send her messages. Please don't message me. But, I love you. Yeah. but, yeah, but, but tonight, tonight, don't do anything. Yeah. 
love with. She's passing on her love and saying goodnight and stuff like that. All that and, and stuff that I do to my wife too. Okay, so I appreciate it. Just, just <laughs> <laughs> so don't just try to not contact each other unless, like I said, first chattering something happens. You guys have to jump in the car right now and drive back to Florida because something happened here. So that kind of circumstance. Exactly. Other than that, just have a meal by yourself. Take your breath. You're gonna be in a hotel room watching TV. It's probably been a few months since you actually got to sit down and relax in some air conditioning and watch TV. So take some time for you guys to see. Yeah, take a shower, man. You gotta change the clothes. You got some Tonys in there, right? All right, good, good, good. Because they're gonna have everything that you need. Shit, camera condition, all that good stuff. All right. Our main concern is make sure that you have cell phone coverage so you guys can come along. Okay. I really be so. Unfortunately, Officer Robbins and the other officers don't notice these lies and inconsistencies in Brian's account. Granted, you have to make sense of a lot of information as a police officer and also as an analyst, but you must go into these call-outs and situations cognizant that you're looking for consistencies and cooperation as well as inconsistencies in accounts. It's really important The devil is in the detail, as I always say. And in domestic violence and stalking cases, it can literally be the difference between life and death and stopping a murder in slow motion. There's no room for complacency or ambivalence. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly. 
allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Brian lied multiple times to the officers, but he was never challenged. Why? Now I've seen this with many cases, and each time the abuser lies and gets away with it, they feel emboldened. That's what happens with behaviour. Also in Officer Pratt's video footage, Park Ranger Melissa Hulls is stood by Gabby's side talking to her as Officer Robbins approaches. In fact, she was stood there for most of the police stop. Now, I've already identified Park Ranger Melissa Hulls as an important person to hear from, and that her body-worn camera footage is probably the most important footage to review. Well, if you were paying attention, you might recall in my interview with Brian Entin that Brian mentioned all the freedom of information requests he'd submitted for Park Ranger Melissa Hulls' video footage, and that it's never been disclosed or released. Interestingly, Brian said he tracked down Park Ranger Melissa Holes' home address and he pitched up there in the hope of an interview. But she refused. But she did give one interview and one interview only, and I want to share with you what Park Ranger Holes said to Carl Dunphy of the Deseret News. Now, if you want to read the article for yourself, the link is in the show notes. The headline of the article was, I can still hear her voice. Archer's part ranger warned Gabby Petito her relationship seemed toxic. The article elaborates further. Park Ranger Holes arrived to find the couple pulled over by a Murr police officer inside the park. Knowing that in domestic violence situations the female usually feels more comfortable talking with another female, she focused on Petito, who at that point was sitting in the back of a police cruiser. Okay, so that's important for me. She knew that it was important to speak with Gabby alone. So this tells me that Park Ranger Holes understood that sex plays a role, more than the male officers did. Now I'm going to read the rest of the Deseret article so you can hear exactly what was said in this exclusive interview with reporter Carl Dunphy. I can still hear her voice. She wasn't just a face on the milk carton. She was real to me. Hulls pictures the sobbing 22-year-old sitting in the back of the cruiser. She knows her mannerisms, just from the roughly half-an-hour interaction. I was probably more candid with her than I should have been, Hulls recalls, warning Petito that her and Laundry's relationships had the markings of a toxic one. I was imploring with her to re-evaluate the relationship asking her if she was happy in the relationship with him and basically saying this was her opportunity to find another path, to make a change in her life, she said. She had a lot of anxiety about being away from him. I honestly thought that if anything was going to change, it would be after they got home to Florida. In the end, Petito stayed with laundry. This wasn't a good day for anybody. We thought we were making the right decision when we left them. Okay, so let's break that down. So right at the end, there's the confirmation of what I initially believed and shared with you all, that the attending officers believed that they did a good job. 
It's unfathomable to me, I have to say. And I also want to be clear, there's no such thing as a toxic relationship. The relationship itself cannot be toxic. A person is. And often toxic is used instead of the correct word, abuse, particularly when there's a coercive controller. Let's learn and use the right words. And if you're not sure, keep asking questions with a keen eye on identifying if there's a power imbalance and who holds the power. And is the person who holds the power exploiting it in their own interest? Now, the article continued and explains that Melissa Holes is an experienced officer. She has 17 years' experience. And it went on that when she heard that a body had been recovered that was consistent with the description of Gabby, Park Ranger Holes said this, and I'm going to directly quote, I honestly haven't looked at my body camera footage for that night. It's hard to think about now because I feel like I could have said more to help her. It's hard not to second-guess myself and wish I said more or wish I had found the right words to make her believe that she deserved more. Okay, so just breaking that down, that's interesting to me. The fact that she never looked at the footage is the first thing that I would do. Well, if I could stomach it, I guess. Because if I knew deep down that I'd messed up, I might be less inclined to do so. She goes on to say this, and I'm directly quoting the article. What Petito did to Laundry was emotional. She shouldn't have done it, but it wasn't done maliciously. I wouldn't have called the relationship unsafe. If we had any reason to think any one of them was in danger, we would have separated them. Okay, so just to break that down, you see, just from this quote, it's clear she didn't understand the dynamics at play. She didn't get the power imbalance. Neither did she speak with the witnesses, nor with Brian. She's going on what she's been told by officers Pratt and Robbins. Also, how would they know about risk and safety? There appears to have been no proper risk assessment undertaken, so how could this be determined? More on that to come. I'm jumping in here to ask you for two minutes of your time. If you value and like what I do and enjoy Crime Analyst, please take two minutes to drop a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts and Crime Analyst. Also, let me know what you love about the show and my work. It really helps others find me, and I really want to get into as many people's ears and consciousness as possible. Also, share me with your friends, family and colleagues. Well, with everybody and anyone. Thank you so much. I appreciate you tuning in and taking time to leave a five-star review. This question was then posed by reporter Carl Dunphy. Why was Petito treated as the aggressor? Why was Laundry, who towered over his fiancée, treated as a victim? And why didn't they notice, as some on Twitter suggested, the signs of a controlling and manipulative relationship? The answer from Park Ranger Holes is interesting, and again, I'm going to directly quote from the article. Hindsight is 2020. It's easy to say that when you can break down a video minute by minute and judge it versus being in the moment when we saw minor injuries and two people that were apologetic, 
It's not that we didn't think he was manipulative, but we have to worry about the safety and not the psychology of it. We have to go by the facts that we were faced with at the time and not let our emotions drive the decision. It's hard not to think that I could have done something more or found the exact words to make her change her life right then. There are so many circumstances where you wish it had gone a certain way and if you get stuck with the would have, could have, should have, you can't do this job. You've got to learn from it and keep going. Otherwise, you're not going to be help for the next Gabby. Okay, so I'm pleased to hear that she's reflected on what happened. I'm also happy to know that she wants to learn and wants to use this to help the next Gabby. That's all really positive, and it's what I say in all my training. If it helps one person, then it makes a huge difference. An officer's a human too, and we must understand and take account of that. You know, I do understand that hindsight is 2020. However, it's the point that murders like Gabby's keep happening over and over and over again, and that's not okay. These are the most dangerous of cases. With some victims, like Gabby, you don't get a second chance. This is exactly why officers must be trained to look beyond the bruises because bruises and broken bones are not solely what domestic abuse and coercive control is all about. Also, I think it's really interesting that Park Ranger Holes referenced Brian being manipulative. She said, It's not that we didn't think he was manipulative, but we have to worry about the safety and not the psychology of it. Now, I have to say, I didn't see any evidence that any of the officers thought Brian was being manipulative. And giving Park Ranger Holes the benefit of the doubt, perhaps she did. I mean, I haven't reviewed her body camera footage, so it's hard to say. But it is important to note that she had very limited interaction with Brian. Now, manipulation and deception can point to coercive control. That's why it's really important to identify it. That's exactly why you should be looking for it, along with the power imbalance when attending domestic abuse call-outs. For me, this illustrates how poor the training is. Officers attending call-outs with no idea really what domestic abuse and coercive control is about. Now, I always say in training, if you get the basics right, the rest will follow. Also, two young people being overly apologetic is much more likely because they've never had an interaction with law enforcement before. And it's pretty scary if you've had no contact with the police. They most likely just wanted them to go away. But it doesn't mean to say that someone is genuinely contrite. Many abusers will say what they need to in the moment to get people to go away and stop them running interference. And just returning to Park Ranger Holes' comment, we have to worry about the safety and not the psychology of it. Now, admittedly, I'm not in her head, and so I'm not really sure what she meant by that. But if I were interviewing her, I would have asked her to elaborate. You see, if there is coercive control and manipulation, and it has escalated to physical abuse, the victim is not safe. I'll repeat that again. If there's coercive control and manipulation, and it's escalated to physical abuse, the victim is not safe. Also, she said, We have to go by the facts that we're faced with at the time and not let our emotions drive the decision. Now, that's true. 
the facts and the evidence. But what if someone's lying to you? And what if they lie multiple times? What if someone's manipulating you, but they seem charming and plausible, and like they're cooperating with you, whilst the other party is crying and emotionally distressed? What then? I mean, perhaps I do need to spell this out. You should never just take someone at their word. How can you investigate without speaking to the witnesses? If you don't ask the right questions, you'll not understand the facts or where to collect the evidence or be able to corroborate what has gone on. How can you understand risk without asking any risk-related questions derived through research and analysis? Now, I say this all the time to law enforcement. A risk assessment is part of the investigation, or it should be. It tells you about risk and safety, but also who else to speak with. It points you in the direction of evidence collection. And once you understand the risks, you can then develop a safety plan. A safety plan with the victim, and also a risk management plan targeting the abuser. This is exactly why the DASH Risk Identification Assessment and Management Tool is so important. It turns a reactive policing process into a proactive policing process. There are 27 questions to ask. They're the right questions, but they're not the only questions, and that's why it's really important to be trained by an expert to use it. This is exactly why my work at New Scotland Yard was so pioneering. Unfortunately, the Metropolitan Police Service was constantly in the media due to cases being dealt with badly, well, more specifically, women's murders by men. There was a time when I was there that it seemed we were in the headlines literally every week. My work was about taking a leap of faith and analysing murders to explore whether there were lessons to be learned. And it wasn't just the domestic murders that I started analysing, I also took 452 near misses, the sexual and serious offences, as well as 104,000 allegations of domestic abuse reported to the Metropolitan Police in 2001. Now, what came out of some painfully detailed and labour-intensive work was the first iteration of the model, called the Specs Plus, and then it evolved into the Dash. The aim of the model was saving lives and changing lives, focused on a first-time, right-time approach, because sometimes you don't get a second chance. Now, when we implemented the model, and it started with very early morning frontline training sessions, training police officers before they went out on the streets and attended the 999 call-outs, domestic murders decreased by 58%. 58% over 13 years. That's 33 women less dead every year. That's huge. That's how many lives were saved year upon year. What does that equate to in terms of money? Well, we costed the average murder at £1.54 million to investigate. That's without any trial or including any review of the murder. And we also costed each domestic violence call-out. So each domestic violence call-out for the police to attend was around £1,000. So it's a whopping great cost-saving. £1.54 million times 33 saved... And then there's all the call-outs prior with the first-time, right-time ethos saved. It's huge. 
Now, at the time, it was estimated that domestic violence and domestic violence abusers cost society £23 billion per year, according to Professor Sylvia Walby's work. Well, it now costs society £66 billion every year in the UK, according to the Home Office. That's a lot of money. In America, it costs $3.6 trillion. That's $73 billion to the criminal justice system and $2 trillion in medical costs, according to the American Journal of Preventative Medicine. You see, it's women's lives that are at stake, and it's also really expensive to keep getting it wrong and not respond effectively. Oh, and of course, that doesn't include lawsuits and inquiries and reviews, which are hugely costly too, in terms of time and money. I received a commissioner's commendation and a commander's commendation for all the life-saving work that I was doing. I just found the photos funnily enough, and I'm really proud of the work we did. It was hard work over years, but so incredibly rewarding. And if you're interested, I'll tell you much more about it in a future episode. Let me know on social media and use the hashtag Homicide Prevention. OK, switching gears, back to my last few points from Brian's interview. One of the points was picked up by The Sun and Daily Mail newspapers in the UK, and the link is in the show notes to the articles should you wish to read them. So Crime Analyst was in the news because of my discussion with Brian about the existence of three confession letters written by Brian Laundry. The eight-page note which I've deconstructed and which Steve Bertolino said he gave to the media as a matter of transparency And it was via Pat Riley, Gabby's family lawyer in the civil case against the laundries, that we learned that two other potential letters existed, and one of them is potentially digital. Well, we also talked about the letter Roberta Laundrie wrote to her son Brian Laundrie. Now, this letter had burn after reading on the front of it, and Roberta apparently offered assistance to Brian and said she'd bake him a cake with a saw in it if he went to jail. As I said before, this letter seems to be of real significance. And I'm curious now about whether Roberta wrote this letter after Gabby was killed by Brian. You heard Brian Entin say that Steve Bertolino said that it was an old letter. But if that were the case, why would she say if Brian goes to prison she'd bake him a cake with a saw in it? And why would he have kept it on his person? At a significant time when he was on the run and had taken very few things with him. That doesn't make any sense to me. Now, according to Pat Riley, Steve Bertolino appeared shocked when he was handed the letter. Now, admittedly, I wasn't there, but perhaps he was shocked because he didn't know that the letter existed, particularly if the instructions burn after reading were on the top of the letter. Roberta most likely thought he had destroyed it, and so potentially she never disclosed its existence. Or, perhaps it was due to the contents of the letter. Importantly, if Roberta knew and offered assistance to Brian, and she knew Gabby was dead, then that could be deemed as aiding and abetting, and maybe the subject of criminal charges. But yet no charges have been filed to date, and the FBI had possession of that letter. That's puzzling, but it could still be very relevant along with the two other confession letters, given the ongoing civil lawsuit. Now, if you listen to episode number 88, which dropped on the 12th of August, a year to the day of the police stop of Gabby's white van, you'll be aware that there are now two lawsuits. 
On the 8th of August, Gabby's mother and father, Nicole Schmidt and Joe Petito, and their respective partners, filed a notice of intent to sue Moab City Police in Utah. The notice of intent is a precursor to a lawsuit, and the government now have 60 days to respond, so it will be interesting to see how this plays out. For now, I want to spend the rest of the episode focusing on Officer Pratt's footage and the other standout moments for you to consider. Now remember, Officer Pratt was initially focused on Brian's behaviour at the start of the stop. I also mentioned that Officer Robbins was as well. In fact, he'd reported to dispatch that the driver might be intoxicated. Interestingly, 16 minutes into the police stop, Officer Robbins was still concerned about Brian's demeanour. Brian was giving his account that he was trying to calm Gabby down by getting loud and telling her everyone was watching. And Brian said he hoped Gabby had no complaints about him. That moment, do you remember? That was really significant for me, and I was hyper-focused on it, as well as Brian's mannerisms, which meant that I overlooked something else, which is very important. At 16.09 of the police stop, Officer Robin suddenly walks away for a moment, having told Brian to hang tight. He walks off, away to the other patrol vehicle. Officer Pratt's at the far end of the caravan of vehicles. He passes by Gabby and Park Ranger Holes, and then does an about turn and walks back to Brian and Officer Ryan Crowell. Now I suspect he's taking stock, or perhaps he wanted to check in with Officer Pratt, But something was up, particularly given what he asked next of Brian. Now I'm going to play the audio of what happened next for you to hear it for yourself. And just a heads up, some of this audio is muted, but take a listen to this. I got a quick question for you, Ryan. Do you take any medications or anything like that? You don't take any medications or anything like that? Are you normally this kind of like hyper? Do I see my, my, my heart rate up? Whenever the lights flash on, it, it gets your heart rate up. If I see my Trust me, it does me too, and I'm the one. <laughs> it yeah. gets me going a little bit. You probably can say, well. hey, buddy, whenever <laughs> somebody walks up. So, okay. Um, yeah, do you know if she takes any? She's crazy. <laughs> no, um, no, I don't think so. No, none that I know of. Okay, did you hear the question and also Brian's response? I'm going to break it down. So first of all, Officer Robbins asked Brian whether he took any medication. Now, that's the muted audio where you don't hear what he answers, and it's most likely private information, which is why it's been redacted. But he confirms that he's not taking any meds. However, he does share that he struggled with his mental health and anxiety. Then Officer Robbins asks him directly if he's always this hyper. And that's fascinating to me. Brian appears to be momentarily taken aback by this line of questioning and asks, do I seem it? He replies by answering the question with the question. Now, this is a classic move to buy time and oftentimes indicates deception. To me, there's a shift here. He becomes more serious and his tone changes, a different Brian than what we've seen before. He manages to recalibrate and he does so pretty quickly. Then he says it's the police stop that made him hyper, and he starts laughing. Officer Robbins then asked if Brian knew whether Gabby took anything, and his answer was instructive. He said this. She's crazy. 
He said it outright. I missed this the first time around. And that's okay. You see, that's exactly why you watch footage multiple times over and over again and listen to the audio as well multiple times. The fact that he says, Gabby is crazy, this is really important. He says it right here because he wants to deflect and ensure the focus is on Gabby and her behaviour. He most likely senses he must up the ante and get Officer Robbins back and focused on Gabby and away from him. Again, answering a question with a question, the change in tone. There were opportunities here to pick up on this, and I would have pressed harder here and challenged Brian about his behaviour. And another challenge should have gone in when Brian said that Gabby was crazy. It could have been an opportune time to advise him that a witness had reported his behaviour and that he had slapped Gabby. Brian should have been made to explain and account for that. But of course... None of this happened. Instead, the moment disappears quickly. Brian laughs it off and said, no, I don't think so, to Gabby taking any meds. He then followed it up by saying that Gabby was not on any medication that he knows of. Wow, that he knows of. So he doesn't say outright no. He leaves this wide open. Now, I believe that that was his intention, to sow the seed of doubt, to corral just enough to put it in Officer Robbins's mind. Because right now, Brian cannot control what Gabby says or does, but he can control how others, i.e. the police, see her, and he's going to give it his best shot. You see, I know from my cases that when a coercive controller cannot control the victim, they will control how someone else views the victim through misinformation and disinformation. Now, I've seen this many, many times before in cases, and often it's done quite subtly, just like this. The introduction of something negative, or something that devalues or discredits, just enough to force the person to look at the victim and put their behaviour under the microscope, which means that they're no longer focusing on the abuser. And that's exactly what happened here. Also, remember that Officer Pratt asked Gabby what was up with Brian's driving after she told him about Brian grabbing her by the face and mouth so hard that his fingernails cut her cheek. Well, Officer Pratt then went off to speak with Brian. Now, as he approached, he laughed and joked with Brian about being bald and told him he knew how it was and he allowed him to stand in the shade. Officer Pratt then asked about whether he drank or anything, he said. He said that they were worried at first about what sort of guy Brian was, but from talking to his girlfriend, that it might not be as clear-cut. Take a listen to this. Okay. You want to come stand in the shade? <laughs> it's freaking hot. Really man. Yeah, I know, how the, I know, the, I know, the, I know the struggle. So you guys, you don't drink or anything? No. Okay. So you were talking to these officers, and I don't mean to butt in, I just felt kind of bad for you. Maybe even if you stand here, you'll have more shade. <laughs> I don't want to do right? weirdo ducking down, but... No, I, I know how it is. I have a big sombrero. <laughs> well, from when I first got here, we were more worried about what kind of a guy you are from what we heard. But in talking to your girlfriend, it sounds to me like maybe this is not so clear-cut. So, did you already give a statement to this officer? Uh, I got no, this gentleman here. here. Yeah. And this gentleman noticed that you had some marks on your, on your neck. Okay. And she's got some marks on her too. So we're just trying to figure out what all happened. And I know you probably already told your story, but this officer is probably going to be the one handling the whole case. Do you want to 
you want to listen to what he has to say, and yeah, absolutely. and then you tell him and tell him what happened, will you? If you don't mind. So there appears to be a complete walk back from being concerned about Brian, despite not having heard Brian's version of events or even having talked with the witnesses. Again, this is so upsetting to me, but that's what happened. And that's not all. I still have more to say, and even I was surprised by what I uncovered, and I think you will be too. Until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.